Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. My guest today is Angie Abdu, and we're talking about research uh, for fiction, and your research for creative writing, for fiction writing specifically. Um, although a lot of it will apply also to you know creative writing of other types, uh, like poetry and so on. Uh, and I want to just point out bef- that this is an older interview, uh, and so this uh, was recorded after Angie's book Between was released. Uh, it was recorded before she had finished or released the novel In Case I Go. Uh, and I just want to point that out because uh, when that novel came out, when In Case I Go came out, there was a bit of a controversy in Canada about the novel and some of the research Angie had done. I'm not uh, going to rehearse the controversy here or you know take a position on it or anything like that. I'm just mentioning it um, because I, in case you think it's weird you know that I don't bring it up, the reason is because it hadn't happened yet. So maybe some future episode, uh, Angie, can come on again and you know I can even maybe have somebody else on with a differing viewpoint and have a debate about uh, you know that whole novel and the kind of controversy surrounding it uh, but that's not what this podcast is you know again it's just too old and without further ado here's Angie Abdu. Thanks so much for talking to me Angie uh, and I want to talk to you specifically about research because your book strike me as really being steeped in research and uh both in, and and also about a variety of different topics, uh, and so there's sort of two things I think of when I think of research, which is one the kind of research I would do in a library, um, and uh, two the kind of thing you would do, which is sort of what I end up doing more of. But but what I'm trying to do more of personally is you know research outside of the library, and and you seem to do a whole lot of both. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could maybe just start uh, with maybe just talking a little bit about the specific uh, research you did for probably your most well-known book, which is The Bone Cage. Um, so I just wonder if you could maybe just dive into that and we'll kind of just move through topics from there. But what are you actually doing sure, for research sure. for that book? First, I just want to say that I love that you say that my books seem like they're steeped in research yeah. because my background before I ever wrote fiction was as an academic and I was a medievalist where re- book research was so important but after a while, I kind of, I wanted to write things that, uh, I always say I wanted, like I wanted my parents to be able to pick up my book and read it and, and understand and get why I'd done it, which wasn't always the case when I was writing academical articles about medieval poetry. And I thought if I'm going to spend all this time working on writing, I want people in my life who aren't necessarily academics to get what I do and why I do it. So I love writing novels that every, you know, more people will read. But I wasn't. I do admire that kind of rigor and that sort of research, and I'm never sure if it's appearing in my books. I really appreciate that you you think that I do do lots of research, and I do. I but that, like you say, it's not always book book research for these kind for fiction, and I enjoy that mix of the library time and the book time. But then also being able to go out and talk to people and experience new things and incorporate that in my books. And with the bone cage, it was so important for me to get the physical detail of those athletic wor- worlds right. And I was able to do, which I can do a lot when I write fiction, able to draw on my own experience. So swimming, I've never been in, uh, I've never swum at the Olympics, but I swam my whole life. I was on um, swim teams, competitive swim teams from the time I was four until I was into my 30s. So I've spent a lot of time looking at the pool bottom, as my character Sadie does. So I could incorporate that into my writing, all of that physical detail and physical knowledge. 
Um, with the wrestling, I have never wrestled, but my brother wrestled in the 2000 Olympic Games, and my father before him wrestled. I grew up watching my father wrestle. My first husband wrestled. So I, because I have, because the bone cage is about swimming and wrestling, and my first husband was a wrestler, my second husband was a swimmer. My, I like to say I don't do research, I just get married, <laughs> which my husband doesn't like that joke at all. But in reality, as you can imagine, to get I might, I might have watched wrestling my whole life, but in the bone cage, when we get to Digger, the, the, the book alternates between the swimmer Sadie and the Digger wrestler, wrestler called Digger. And when I get to Digger, I don't want the, the reader to feel like they're witnessing wrestling from the outside, which is the only way I know wrestling. I want the reader to feel like they're in the skin of the wrestler. And um, Suzette Mayer, my first reader, my dissertation advisor, as she was uh, involved in your project too, she was the one that made me see that. She said, when I'm when I'm reading Sadie, I feel like I am an Olympic swimmer. When I feel watch Digger, I feel like I'm watching from the stand. So that then at that late stage, that's when I had to bring in a whole new kind of research. So I interviewed countless wrestlers. You know, what does it feel like when? What do your quads feel like at the start of the match when you're fresh? What do they feel like at the end? What about your hamstrings? What about your hands? What about your wrists? What about when you're losing? What about when you're winning? And the, the wrestlers I know are very, very intelligent and articulate. So the thing, and this is their world, they know it. So the phrases they would say, it was almost like ready-made poetry. It was so exact and perfect. So that was fun to then take that and infuse it all in throughout the novel and bring it to a new level. So is that something you were doing in the editing process more fully then? Because you say you were kind of digging after specific physical, you know, this is how this feels. This is, you know, how I mentally feel when I do this. Um, how much do you kind of do maybe before that editing stage? And how much do you think you're kind of doing in that editing revising stage in terms of, you know, searching for particular types of research? For me, writing is such a layering thing, and I always feel like my process is very inefficient and like I should come up with a different process. But, you know, I'm four books in, and I guess it works, and I guess it, I have to at some page, okay, this is the way I do it. And I, I think of it like, to make myself feel better, make sense of it, I think of it like as if a painter would put one layer on, stand back and see how it looks, and then go closer and put some more layers and maybe erase this. And so I'm kind of always going back to the same page and layering and taking things out and putting things back in and research works the same way for me so with that wrestling example the book had already been accepted it was accepted by new west press and i felt like it was in pretty good shape and i was totally stoked to have my first book coming out and then i got this feedback from suzette which was brilliant and dead on the mark but made me kind of want to cry i said oh my god that's a, that's a lot of work that's a massive rewrite and then i went right back to the interview stage which you would imagine coming first but it wasn't i hadn't i hadn't seen that last that point is out and then it was absolutely there so that researching came late and I think I that layering sort of process is at work in my other books too like um I wrote Between is my most recent novel and um it features one of the narrators is a Filipino nanny who leaves her family in the Philippines goes to Hong Kong in order to make her way to Canada where she figures the streets will be paved with gold because that's what she's been told and um, I've never been a Filipino nanny. I've never lived in the Philippines. I've never lived in Hong Kong. I've never taken care of other people's children. I've never lived in other people's basements. I've, none of that stuff. And so that, again, was a lot of that same kind of research, talking to people and getting those details, which I had not seen portrayed in fiction. But I, um, you know, I can't assume that I'm going to get all the research done and then start the book. I don't know what I don't know until I'm writing. And I don't know where it's falling flat or too thin until I until I have a full draft. And I don't know, there'll be other um, holes that I don't see until a really good editor points them out to me. So I'm constantly going back to the research. It's not, I mean, it would be 
if it was, it would be easy. If it was research, outline, rough draft, revise, publish. <laughs> That's not how my process works. So it's always coming. It's always a big mix of it all. So if you're always going back in revisions or even when you're drafting to, you know, the research and trying to find things, how do you balance researching and writing? Like, you know, how do you do, because research can be a trap, uh, you know, uh, that keeps you from writing, I think. Uh, yeah. I was one time at a festival and I was, I won't name any names, but there was a very established, successful Canadian fiction writer speaking and she had written a book about writing the writing community in the 70s I think it was and someone in the audience who is a very established older nonfiction writer who had grown up through that age she asked her about research like so how did you go about researching the writing scene in Canada in the 70s and the novelist sort of blew the question off a little bit she said oh I don't like to get too bogged down in research I just kind of skimmed along and I could just see the eye rolling in from the nonfiction, heavy-duty successful researcher who lived in that era right had who had been a writer in those movements and um, I could see both of their side like as a novelist I mean you can totally get trapped in research if you feel like you need to know everything before you start writing because you will never know everything and you won't even know what you don't know until you're writing um, but on the other hand I could see someone who's lived in this time and, and say, well, what do you know? And now you're blowing off research. So I think the answer is in the middle. Like you sure don't want to get caught out not knowing your stuff, but you don't want to get stuck researching forever. And for me, that's why it's that layering. Like I let myself start writing with that constant awareness of that. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be an Olympic wrestler. I don't know what it's like to be a Filipino nanny. And I, my early drafts are filled with square brackets, you know, come back, find more about this, find out what do they eat, what do they do on their day off, what do they, you know, and the, what, what is the, you know, climate like this time of year, and so, so many questions come up, but I don't know what I'm going to need to know, so my first drafts are just a mess of square brackets, and then I come back and fill those in with research, and I find, I mean, there's so much you can do on the internet now, there's so much information, but I found always I find talking to the source to the people is so much more helpful like I there's the, those details those physical visceral exact details that those Olympic wrestlers gave me I could have never got those no matter what I googled or no matter what library I read it and same with the Filipino stuff I read everything I could get my hands on about the Philippines but sitting down with these Filipino nannies living in Canada and asking them and they're so they're just so excited to share the details of their life and they would tell me things I wouldn't think to ask or stories would come out because it would be a good story they want to share with me and that I would have never I would have never got there by doing book research so so how much would kind you... of like balance. oh sorry I was gonna say I like the balance because um one thing when I was in academia and that um writing writing research research about something so specific and esoteric that most people don't care about I found hard I'm, I think I'm an extrovert by nature so I'd like even though I'm drawn to writing it's a very anti-social profession and so I love the mix of like when I get right into a project I'm writing writing but then I can say oh I wonder what someone who's similar to this character would have to say and I can go and I can talk to people about what I'm working on and I can have those exchanges it's a nice I like the social, anti-social balance instead of just immersing myself in written words. So how do you go about approaching somebody that you want to talk to about, uh, you know, to interview for some reason or other? Like, what's a good uh, way to approach a person? And uh, have you had any resistance from people about, you know, broaching particular topics? Or, or how do you kind of negotiate or handle, you know, when you're discussing something with somebody that they know and you know, you're going to put in a book? 
like in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you're not, you know, putting them in a book. But I think for a lot of people, especially when you're trying to get at personal details about, you know, how this feels, how that felt, um, what's this experience like? Like, I wonder, it seems like it could be a tricky sort of thing to negotiate. I'm just curious to know how you handle that. Yeah, you know, I think I, I tend to be really enthusiastic about a project when I'm immersed in it, like most people are. Why would you write a book if you weren't enthusiastic? Mm-hmm. So I think I come to them with that enthusiasm and uh, excitement to know their story and share their story. And I, um, like in the case of the Olympic wrestlers or in the case of the Filipino nannies, those are people you, I hadn't seen represented in fiction yet and, and Canadian literature. And that's why I felt compelled to tell their story. And so they're also responding to that absence. So they're like, well, hey, yeah, our story hasn't been told. Or is, what is, where is the book about my story? So they kind of, they, on one hand, they've seemed to feel honored that I think their stories were telling and enthusiastic to share their details and their, and their stories and all those little things that I wouldn't know. And so I've been greeted with real enthusiasm and generosity. People are very happy to tell me, to talk to me as much as, I want now whether or not they're happy with the book once it comes out because it's then my version of their story. I don't think I think some sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes people have shared their story and their information and then they somehow it's not what they expected and that's where the awkward part comes in. And I find that disappointing too. You know, if someone like for example, to be more specific, my novel The Canterbury Trail is about uh, partly about ski culture in a town very much like Fernie where I live, but it's um, fictionalized. And so I talked a lot when I was writing the project. I, I'm not one of these people who so I'm not going to say anything until it's done. I love to talk about what I'm doing. I'm a, a talker. So I would tell people, oh, I'm writing a story about Fernie, and it's going to be funny, and it's going to be this and that. And so a lot of people would say, oh, you should write about this or that. They tell me stories, and some of those made their way in. But when it came out, it's pretty darkly satirical, and I didn't occur to me that people might not like Town for Town so, so the enthusiasm that while I was working on it didn't, in all cases, match the enthusiasm once it was out, and that's hard to take. But I don't know. I just I've decided I'm going to be a writer, and I can't, I can't write and worry about what people are going to think. You know, if I sat down and thought, oh, is so and so going to like this, and what about so and so? Are they going to be mad? And what's would this be? This make this person happy? That's I wouldn't write a word, right? So at some point, I just have to be. It's my vision and it's my story. And if someone wants to tell their vision and their story, they're welcome. And hopefully I don't offend too many people. But if that was my main goal, not to offend people, then I would write Hallmark cards, not novels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. And of course, you know, you're approaching the person saying, you know, I'm going to put it in a book. (laughs) It's not necessarily a surprise. Although, like you say, they might just not understand the process uh, as well. Um, But, but, you know, it's interesting. It's nice to hear that people are generally enthusiastic and uh, about um, your enthusiasm, I guess, which I suppose, as you point out, must make a big difference. Uh, I just want to, just speaking of the Canterbury Trail, one of the things that strikes me with that book too is, in addition to, you know, being about ski culture and as you know, you're going talking to people and getting their stories and all these uh, personal experiences and, and sort of dragging, uh, you know, the whole wealth of kind of you know real world experience in there. There's also, of course, a level at which is you know has us wellspring it's coming kind of kind of from the wellspring of chaucer and as you say you know your academic sort of training is uh you know more firmly in that base camp um one thing i always find interesting about that is i often see, will see reviews where nobody will notice or or seem to understand that it's you know even just in the title like a reference to one of the most famous literary works of all time um so you're you're doing a lot of you know clear literary research as well uh you know for a book like that and and so maybe 
maybe you can talk a bit more about that specific book and the kind of research you might do in a library, uh, you know, or even just if there was a book you were writing where maybe uh, you had to do a lot of that kind of, you know, really heavily uh, kind of literary focused research, like how would you approach that? Uh, you know, is there ways you approach it differently or, um, and, and again, how do you kind of like for that book specifically, like how'd you kind of balance those two worlds of research, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. The bone cage also is a medieval reference. It's from yeah. Beowulf. The bone cage is a, a metaphor for the body. And so I, when mm. I have a friend who teaches at McEwen University in Edmonton, and he and I had been at Western together in my medievalist days, and he said, you're still a medievalist. You might pretend you're writing about swimming and wrestling and skiing, but you're at heart, you're a medievalist. So I, I, um, I always tell my students that when you decide to write, whether it's a poem or a book or anything, you're you're entering into a conversation, and this conversation has been going on since the start of the written word. So if you think you don't have to hear, listen to what everyone else is saying before you decide what you have to say, then that's an incredibly egotistical, narcissistic act, right? You can't. It's a conversation. You have to have some idea what everyone else is saying before you enter into it. And so reading is so important. And I mean, not maybe not everybody needs to go back to the classics and the medieval literature. And I, that's, that was my training. So when I enter into a conversation, it's not just with other Canadian writers or other contemporary writers, but it's, it's sometimes with this medieval stuff that's just so, that I spent years and years reading and thinking about. So with the Canterbury Trail, I really like the idea that in, in Chaucer, he has these pilgrims. And they're going. They're on a pilgrimage, um, and they're people who wouldn't normally spend time together. So, because of this pilgrimage, it brings people together from all different classes and all different walks of life, and people that might not talk to each other in everyday existence. And they're together for this space, and so we see them interact, and so it allows him the opportunity to do a satire of a cross section of his society. And I thought, isn't that perfect with the world I, I lived in, Fernie? Uh, our pilgrimage in, in Chaucer, it's. Um, it's the spring showers, April showers bring them out for the pilgrimage. But in my story, it starts um, puking out, as we say. It's snowing very heavily, and the ski hill is already closed down. So all these different people get the chance, the idea that they're going to go into the backcountry and um, spend spend the last winter weekend um, having their snow fun. And so it's the, the, the spring snow showers that bring them out. And it's a similar, I use it at the types, the cross-section, the rednecks, the hippies, the developers, the urbanites and I just get a cross section so it wouldn't that wouldn't work in every like someone said to me once oh Moostra is where you're from why didn't you try to do this with Moostra and it just wouldn't work like Fernie has those types that you know Chaucer had a different set of types and the same kind of thing that they might not share world views but put them together and so so from the start I was playing off of Chaucer and I had I mean in some ways I didn't have to do a ton of research because I'd already done it in my life I you know I did my medieval comps on Chaucer I taught Chaucer courses I memorized Chaucer so so it was there, but I did go back and I would every time similar, like I didn't feel like I had to sit down and memorize Chaucer's Canterbury Tales before I started. But when I came to a section in the book, I thought, oh, wait, I wonder how this could play off the Miller's Tale. I wonder how this could play off that structurally. Or what about if I somehow used Chaucer's retraction in the end to inform my ending? And I would go back as needed. So that same kind of layering process I talked about, like I can't feel like I need to hold everything in my head before I even start. So that was with the layering. Um, but like you said, I was shocked when the reviews started coming out. And there was this one review in the Globe and Mail. I swear the guy had never even heard of the Canterbury Tales. He started out by criticizing that, that I had used types, like the redneck and the hippie and the ski bum. Yeah. And I was like, that's so, who 
great. <laughs> you can't assume. I mean, as a writer, you can do all this research, and you can't assume that the reader is there with you. Like you know, I can't. I can. I think even you can like normally famous texts like the Canterbury Tales is going to be lost on some people. Well, some you... people in the Globe and Mail. <laughs> you, you would hope it wouldn't be lost on a reviewer of books. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was cut. You know how newspapers are. But it, 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 it is an odd thing for that specific book just because of the title. Like, even if you're going to miss, you know, all these illusions or what have you, I, I mean, it's the freaking title. Like, I just found it strange. <laughs> but, you know. It says something, I think, about reviewing culture in in a general sense. But um, it is, although, uh, on the other hand, uh, in some ways, arguably a, a kind of testament to, you know, sneaking the research in in an unobtrusive way. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's something you're concerned about, because I know that's a concern of a lot of writers. They do all this research, and then they kind of take the iceberg tip of the research, and they put it in, and they try to be very careful not to put to make it obtrusive in some ways and to kind of really pick and choose what they put in. Uh, So one, I'm kind of wondering if you do that, uh, but two, I'm just sort of curious about that process of like, how do you figure out what to put in, what not to put in? Because of course you're not writing, you know, nonfiction tome. I mean, as you say, it is a novel. uh, And so you just have this limit to the amount of research you need. uh, And of course you could always put more than you need if you, if you choose, uh, it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, but I think I'm curious to know what your approach is and how you kind of make those distinctions. Like, how do you tell what needs to be in there versus maybe yeah. what you might just put in there for, you know, the reader that cares, but doesn't necessarily need to be there uh, versus like, what do you really hold back um, for some reason yeah. or other? I can answer that question with a, a example too, with the Canterbury trail is I um, also, as I was working on the book, I thought I'm talking a lot about, our relationship with the environment and about ecotourism and about outdoor recreation, you know, snowmobiling versus backcountry skiing and what that says about what, how we feel about our environment. And also these people who incredibly want to take that backcountry space and it's theirs and they get to say what it's going to be and they get to name it. And, and you know, they were all, all fighting over ownership of this unownable wild. And so I thought, whatever, this is, obviously engaged with the same kind of ideas as eco-criticism, the branch of literary theory. And I didn't know very much about eco-criticism other than what I need to figure out is about environment and about literature. And so, but as I was working on the book, I thought I need, I need to know more about eco-criticism because I'm obviously dealing with the same issues. So I started reading all the standard texts and learning as much as I could, knowing full well that I'm not going to just take that theory and plunk it in the middle of my novel. But at the same time, like I said, I'm, I'm entering into a conversation. I need to know what other people are saying about this. And so I took just, I, I mean, it's informed by eco-criticism, not whether most people would know that or not, I don't know, but um, I took some lines that I really liked, um, like the map is not the train, for example, and so I have someone in the novel, I have other ways I'm gesturing towards this, this branch of thinking, but someone actually says the map is not the train in my novel, and I maybe have a few other little signals like that, and I feel like like I said, in my mind, I'm doing the research so that I can be part of the conversation. I'm not writing in a vacuum. I'm not egotistical enough to think nobody else has ever talked about environments and literature, so I better get see what they say and where I'm fitting in that conversation. So that's a whole bunch of research I do so that I feel confident that I'm entering into a conversation rather than talking to myself. Are all readers going to pick up on that? No, no but um, 
In fact, I was really surprised. Um, no reviewers for the longest time mentioned the environmental aspect of the Canterbury Trail. And I was kind of like, oh, that just was lost on everybody. And then all of a sudden, this uh, guy, Corey Willard, reviewed it for the sport literature blog in the U.S. And he did a total, complete eco-criticism reading of it. And I just felt like, woohoo, it really is there. It's there if people want to find it. It's not going to be there for every reader. And then since then, a couple... Um, Cross uh, have taught R Richard Pickard at U of Vic taught it in his eco criticism course. So it's you know it gets there. It's there, and I just, I think as a writer of novels, is if you're writing academic stuff, you're writing for experts, and you can expect them to get exactly so focused, right? When you, when I write a novel, I realize people are going to read it in different ways and get different things out of it, and so maybe nobody will get that my book is about our relationship with the environment, except for the people who are looking for that. So. How do I know what to leave in? Because they're right. The map is not the train. It's a little tip. And what else? What else? The whole conversation that's ready to be drawn out for readers who want to is underneath. How do I? I, I was talking about this because um, that's part of the revision process, right? I might have way too much, and I might have a big chunk of really heavy-handed, ego-critical jargon in the middle of my novel, which is not going to work. Or I might have. I might be hinting towards something that's too subtle of a hint, and nobody's going to pick it up. So where to find the space between that is something that happens at the revision process. And I was talking to someone, one of my students, about this the other day that it's on my, I don't know if you know uh, Link, Malcolm Gladwell's book. He talks about how we have all these um, people, someone who is, I'm going to give you an example because otherwise I'm not going to do justice. But he said, say you have someone who is an expert at um, telling whether a painting is a fraud or an original. And that person might come and look and say, oh, it's a fraud, or oh, it's an original, and they know right away. And it's not how they know, they just have all this detailed um, information in their head that their brain is processing so fast that you can't even tell that it's actually working through this list of things that they know. And I think by reading a lot and, and be noting what works, what doesn't work, what do I respond to, what do I think is brilliant, and what do I, and what do I just chuck and not remember and can't even stand to read it, I am my brain, I have a list of all those things that what works and what doesn't. But um, as Malcolm Gladwell said, the response, like uh, my brain processes that and I get some kind of physical response. So when I read something that's really good, my skin buzzes. With I'm like, this is good. When I read something that's not good, I kind of feel like an embarrassment response, <laughs> especially if I'm the one who's written it. So I use that physical response. You know, when I've written something, I can put it aside. And when I come back to read my own, I can hear those physical, oh, my skin's buzzing. I like this part. This is actually better than I thought, or, oh, this is, <laughs> this is embarrassing, right? And so then I can kind of guess what to tease out and what to cut. Not to say that I always get it right, but that's how I decide how much of the iceberg <laughs> to show. Do you think that the research helps open it up to multiple audiences? Like, one of the things that struck me when you were uh, talking about you know, how this person knows this, this person knows that, is I wonder if that opportunity would be there if you didn't have all that research. So, you know, if you have all the research that maybe nobody you know, in Canadian book reviews is going to notice, but, you know, there's some medievalist, you know, who's noticing it. Like, do you feel like that's something that uh, really helps, I guess you'd say, build an audience for the work? Or do you think that's, um, I guess, like outside of the story itself, which of course, you know, has this attraction, do you think like there's a level at which the research uh, widens, you know, kind of the scope of who might want or enjoy this book? Does that make sense? I do think so, and I think um, I, I'm very grateful people teach my books. My books get taught in universities in Canada and the U.S., uh, especially the Bone Cage with the Canterbury Trail as well. And so I just 
I'm so grateful for that because it gives the book a life beyond that little six to eight month window that seems to be the publishing cycle. And so I try to write books that are compelling and a good story and people who aren't looking for Chaucer, aren't looking for criticism, or aren't looking for Beowulf, they can read it on that level and they can enjoy it and they can like the characters and they can talk about it afterwards. And then they can move on to the next thing and forget about it. But because I'm an English teacher by training, that's just what I am, I, I think about books, about how could you teach them and what would you talk about and what might someone write an essay about. And so... On one hand, I think, oh, I wish I could just write a popular book, that grocery aisle store book that everybody would read and then someone would make a Hollywood movie. But I have to say, no, you know, this is the kind of reader I am. And so this is going to be the kind of writer I am. And the upside is, is I reach these different audiences and people do teach my books and people write my books. And that's very gratifying that people are spending that much time. And so, and it, and it gives the book a life beyond that eight-month cycle because it's so short, it's so short, the publishing one thing I often tell students, you know, when they kind of are pushing against research is that even those guys and girls who are like writing the huge mass market, you know, commercial fiction, like they're often doing crazy amounts of research. So if you look at that, you know, Da Vinci Code, I mean, that is a meticulously researched book, although, you know, you could argue with some of the research. And of course, it's a horribly written book. Um, but, you know, it's just a bunch of research. And a lot of the attraction to that book is, in fact, the amount of research that go, went into it, you know. Um, I mean, it, most of them work on a different model than he does because uh, they're publishing constantly. But, um, you, you know, I, I feel like the research, which is it's hard, and a lot of people want to find excuses not to do it because of the difficulty. Um, or they feel like they're in some story or some topic where maybe they don't know what they would research. Uh, and, you know, they're writing about, you know, often people who are writing fantasy of some sort uh, will try to sort of skimp on the research. And I, I try to point out to them, no, no, like, you still have to do some research. Like, maybe you don't, you know, need to do the kind of research that somebody else might do, but you, you still got to, you know, go read books in that genre. You got to read, you know, uh, similar types of work. You know, one of the big things I do for research is just find other books that are like my idea, um, you know, because they, they are, they're of course out there. And, you know, there's the, always that danger, I think, of, not knowing, as you say, not knowing the conversation that has been happening that you're now stepping into. And all of a sudden now you're saying all these stupid things because you just don't get that, like, that was said 200 years ago and it was said better. <laughs> and, you know, it's in fact, you know, that's that's a, a score that's been settled or, or what have you. Um, uh, so kind of coming off that, I'm wondering, like, have you always sort of had this approach to research? Like, if you go back to your short story book, um, Anything Boys Can Do, um, I mean, that's a variety of stories, but it was the, so it's not really, like, one thing that you're researching necessarily, but was there a way that you were kind of um, doing some of this uh, sort of approach to research, you know, with those stories, or uh, when you were kind of putting the book as a whole together, you know, was there a way in which you were maybe like looking at other short story books or, or, or other models? Like how did the, maybe the research look for that book versus say some of the novels that you've written since then? Before I'm going to answer that, but first I just want to back to one of the earlier sure. things you said about writing in different genres. And I think the other thing that kind of research does, but if I say, okay, I'm going to write a fantasy novel, I better go read the best fantasy novels and the contemporary fantasy novels. And I'll, um, one thing that does is just lets you know how high the bar is that no matter what field you pick to write in, there's really good stuff out there. And so recently I thought my current novel was taking the direction of horror fiction, thriller sort of. Mm -hmm. And 
I went and I read um, Andrew Piper, who's tremendously successful in Canada. Scary, scary man. <laughs> and then I read Craig Davidson, who writes under Nick Cutter. Yeah. And God, they're good. Those books are good. So anyone who has the idea that by maybe doing genre fiction, it might be less competitive or the writing has to be less solid, is out to lunch. Those books are good. And so it just gives you a reality check of where the bar is. It's that. more competitive and it's even more competitive in the simple marketplace terms. You know, uh, like one thing I always say to people, if they, you know, if they're thinking, Oh, I should maybe start writing genre fiction. You might be easier. I say, yeah, it's harder because you know, there's more people doing it. The standards are, you know, pretty high. Like people often poo poo some of the popular or commercial fiction, but like, they have heavy standards. They get back to you faster with faster rejections, you know, <laughs> and you know, they are very, um, I mean, it's not always publishing great stuff, but like everywhere else. Um, but, you know, it, it's not an easy task. I'm really impressed with Nick Cutter in particular because he's putting out book after book, you know, and I don't know how he does it, you know. The Truth is the scariest, grossest, most disturbing book I've ever yeah. read in my life. And I spent my, I spent my teenage years obsessed with Stephen King, so I, I have yeah. had my time in that genre. But, God, that's a book. It's really yeah. good. I liked it a lot. There are a couple. There are a couple of things I didn't like about it, but um, generally speaking, I was pretty impressed. And his the book, The Deep, I thought was even better. Although again, you know, you can always pick a few things that may be problematic. But uh, you know, he's he's quite impressive, and uh, Piper as well. You know, again, has done some really impressive stuff. And there's just so many people. Um, you know, one of his books is a response to Paradise Lost, and one is a response yeah. to Don. So he has that kind of research that you're talking about too. Yeah, and he said, "I said, what comes next?" Because he's always figuring the other the book about evil or the book about dark, scary things, and how he's in conversation with it. Like I like to talk, and he said, "Well, when you're talking scary." He said, "You can't get much scarier than the Bible, any of the yeah. Bibles." So I think maybe that's what we'll see come next. Um, now just to bring it back to the anything boys can do question you asked about my short story collection. Part of me is tempted to say, "Oh no, I didn't research that," which would be a lie. But because what it was, it was my um, it was my teach myself to write book. I had been doing academia and in my secret mind I always wanted to be a fiction writer but was too chicken to give it a try and then in uh, 1999 April 9th I got in a head-on collision um, on the highway and I thought I was gonna die as you can see I didn't die so when I woke up in the foothills trauma ward with a broken back not knowing if I'd ever walk again as soon as I recovered I started okay no you know what I want to be a fiction writer I'm gonna figure out how this is done so I bought every kind of how do you write fiction book that there is. And as, you know, as I was doing those exercises, I was shaping them all towards short stories. I'm very, very goal oriented, I guess. So even while I was just doing practice writing, I was like, okay, well, my first, if I can work these up into 10 or 12 short stories and then put them in a book, that could be my first book, right? So, so part of the research was just how do you write a short story? How do you write characters? How do you write dialogue? How do, you, how do people even do this? And then at the same time, I was subscribing to every literary magazine I could get my hand, you know, the Grains, the Mel Hat Reviews, the Event, um, the New Quarterly, and just reading what what is getting published and which ones do I like and what don't I like and why. And so that, it was more of a research of form and genre and marketplace and, and, and craft than uh, other research. And so I was writing about things around me like infidelity and betrayal and communication between the sexes and things just very much the world around me but figuring out how to write and so sometimes I say that that's the book that other writers have left in their drawer you know people talk about their first book being in their drawer and will never see the light of day and for me that was that is my me with my broken back in my basement suite teaching myself how to write short stories that that's the product of that in that book so I did a ton of research right but it was research 
different from my other books, research on how to write. But that's, you know, a significant amount of research. And, and, and I think it's a, it's something that, again, like a lot of people discount. Uh, like, at least, you know, sometimes when you're talking to people, they seem to discount that and they have this idea that they don't want an influence or they don't want, you know, um, they don't need to know what is going on. Uh, it can somehow be a hindrance. Of course it's not, but it's hard to sometimes explain that. And, and, and you do have to kind of learn even who you are as a writer, I think, which it kind of takes a weird sort of research um, to do that because, again, you know, you don't necessarily know what the options are. Uh, in a manner of speaking, uh, if you don't, you know, uh, again, even just, you know, kind of read widely. I, I One thing that, though, I think becomes a trap eventually is people start to figure out who they think they are as a writer. Uh, and then they are, have this narrow focus. Um, and so, uh, you know, of course, again, research, <laughs> I mean, can often kind of just break you out of that. I mean, and one of the things that impressed me about you is you're, you're often tackling very different uh, uh, material. So, Coming to between uh, your more recent book again, if we just kind of cycle back to that again, you were, I mean, uh, maybe could you talk a bit about the genesis of that book and, and again, kind of how you started pursuing the idea, um, just to kind of get a clearer picture of the amount of research or the type of work you would do before you really started drafting, because uh, a lot of what we've been talking about so far is, you know, in, in the revision process or while drafting, but before you started working on that book, what were you kind of thinking and what kind of drew you to that book uh, and, and and what did you kind of do before you really started going with it? So I agree. My books are really different from each other and um, which is funny because they all come in some way from my, my life. They are not that I don't write autobiographical fiction per se, but they come out of obsessions or preoccupations or things that I need to figure out for my own personal reasons. So my life just changes enough every five years or so that I can have a book that seems very different from my obsessions of the last five years. So with Between, um, I had kids quite late in life. Uh, I was almost 40 when my second was born, second and last. And um, so I already had an established career and I had um, goals. And I don't know what I thought these children were going to be little accessories that would just add to my already perfect life. And it turns out that it, having kids, as you know, was incredibly transformative. And, and I was having a, well, I was madly, madly in love with my children and so grateful to have healthy children. I was figure out the work-life balance and how I was supposed to keep on with the things I'd been doing or am I just supposed to slam my brakes on my career so I was struggling with all these things about being a working mother and um, at the same time I had issues with people were starting to get Filipino nannies in the community I lived in and I thought I had liberal guilt issues around that like what right do I have to take advantage of someone um, so impoverished and transplant them to make my first world life even easier and so I was really struggling with that, and uh, things got to a breaking point where we did need live-in help, and we did have a woman from the Philippines come live with us for two years, and it just seemed so conflicted and complex, and I, I, I needed to put pen to paper to even figure it out, and so that's where that novel idea came from, um, and this is something I'm just figuring out about my process. I don't really outline, and I don't really, I wish I could. I don't really know exactly the ending when I start. I know ideas I know what I'm writing about and it's a real struggle and I think I figured out that I almost write a uh, garbage draft first and that's my outline like I just start writing and I, I don't know another way to do it but I think at some point I just have to accept well this is my process and a book comes at the end so why fight it why not I think I put pen to paper and just write um, a draft almost that isn't even 
like you would never want someone to read it. It would be horribly embarrassing. And that's when then I stand back from that and figure out what it's about. So I had done a draft of this one almost all from the working mother who's having a breakdown first point of view and it was incredibly um, navel gazing and narcissistic and narrow and I, I think when I stood back and I realized started thinking about how it's going to work I thought no this needs to be back and forth between the two women between the working North American mother who's totally overextended and at a breaking point and cannot not coping with the Filipino woman who's leaving her family behind to try to survive and the, the relationship between them so I, then I had to research so much to fill that in and now I can't even remember what your question was because I got lost. No, you've answered my question. It was just sort of about again how you kind of led yourself to that idea and what research you were doing before you started drafting. Um, and, and so the other the other sort of question related to that I suppose is is it possible to do too much research? Like is it possible to paralyze yourself or to otherwise again just sort of break away from writing into this you know research mode um, and and kill the idea. Do you have you ever had I that happen, so. or how yeah, do you avoid that happening? Think, yeah, I, 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 it's very important for me to put pen to paper early on, even if I'm writing stuff that's not going to end up being in a final draft. Because if I think I need to, because I write to find out the answers, I write to figure out what the problem is and then what the answers are. So, so I don't. If I had it, if I had all the answers before I started, or if I had totally understood something before I started, I wouldn't feel the need to write. Um, for one thing, and yeah, I prefer a serious process. I was in, um, I did a Saskatchewan Writers Guild conference in March, um, and the speakers were Christian Book and Michael Helm, and I was struggling with this manuscript, and um, and I started, I was talking to people like Andrew Piper and Terry Fallis who outline, and I was thinking, I need to outline. Like, they know what the story is and whether the story is going to work, and they make an outline. I was like, I'm doing it wrong. I need to do it like these guys do it. And it just it wasn't coming to life for me, and I was trying to do it in a different way based on, on those guys. And then Michael Helm, he talked about writing into the dark and not really knowing what you're doing and how, how amazing the creative process is that you access this part of your brain that you didn't even know existed and you can never access otherwise. And I just... I felt myself light up, that physical visceral response that I talked about that you need to listen to. I thought, that I miss. And that's what—that's the kind of writing I do, and that is my process. And maybe sometimes it's frightening and frustrating and seems like not very efficient to my scientist husband or something, but that's the way I, way I do it, is that I just dive in and write right into the dark, as Michael Helm says. But then search as needed and fill in the holes and figure out what the story is and it's an incredibly messy messy process but creativity is messy I think uh, I have a psychiatrist friend in Massachusetts who's also a writer and he talks both about life and in writing and has to um, tolerate chaos that's what leads to creation so when there's a certain amount of disorder and chaos and that's what creation grows out of so you do, I, I at least need to have a tolerance for that messy disordered chaotic part of the process and hope and hope trust trust that something's going to grow out of it i tell myself you know i'm four books in i should trust my process at this point well excellent well that, i think that's a good note to kind of end off on so i, I just want to thank you very much for talking to me and uh it's been great and uh yeah get back to work i mean i i, I you came from the library this morning right were you out were you there researching something or were you actually no i'm on you know, the library board Sorry, oh there you go me. Well, you yeah. could always, you know, double dip and do some write a book about a library board. Uh, at least 
<laughs> maybe not <laughs> but but no that's excellent uh well thanks so much angie thank you jonathan right bye-bye, bye-bye.